0: like I'm a part of something bigger. My favorite business show. Hands down the best B2B sales and marketing podcast.
1: The ultimate resource for salespeople. George makes me want to conquer local. An authentic entertainer. Conquer Local with Vendasta. Here's George Leaf. It's the latest edition of the Conquer Local podcast. And I've been trying to track this guy down. I met Donnie Dye when he was VP of sales at Simplify, but he left to start his own organization. We had a conversation about four months ago about him coming on the podcast. Finally, I've been able to track down Donnie Dye. He's the founder of a new organization called Quota NYC. Donnie's a super smart sales leader, and he has worked with sales organizations in the local media space. And now he's starting to bring those learnings forward for software companies, for media companies, and he is consulting and he's out working with these organizations. He's going to teach us some things in the upcoming minutes of the Conquer Local podcast. And what you're going to find, and I guarantee you this is there is a lot more than just sitting in front of a customer and making a presentation in building out a successful sales organization in 2019. Donnie Dye founder of quota NYC is our guest on the Conquer Local podcast.
0: Join us for Conquer Local 2019 in beautiful sunny San Diego. California's Beach City and the legendary Hotel Del Coronado will play host to the most valuable conference of the year for companies selling marketing solutions to local businesses. We have a must-see lineup of industry experts, including our keynote speaker Kevin O'Leary from ABC's Shark Tank. Our entire slate of accomplished speakers have been hand-picked to address the top six growth problems facing all B2B companies. Product, demand, sales, scale, retention, and expansion. You'll get stimulating talks, tactile workshops, and an opportunity to connect with the brightest minds in your industry, all geared toward turning your business into a recurring revenue growth engine. Plus, you can experience an unforgettable adventure on a guided tour of the world-famous San Diego Zoo, capped off with an incredible treetop reception. We've secured deep discounts on conference hotel rooms, but they are limited and going fast. Don't miss out. Go to conquerlocal2019.com and get your tickets and rooms today.
1: Donnie Dye is joining me on the Conquer Local podcast. And Donnie, you know, the interesting thing is you and I have stood in front of sales teams over the years. You working at Simplify at the time, talking about their digital ad solution and me talking about presence and reputation. And I'm sure there's listeners of the Conquer Local podcast that have heard you speak. So let's, let's first give them an update where you are today and just give us a little bit of an intro um, on Donnie Dye and, and uh, where you're sitting today, what, what hat you're wearing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, uh, I, I, every once in a while I get pinged on LinkedIn and some other social media platforms where they're kind of going, what are you doing these days? So for those that don't know or don't know me at all, my name Donnie Dye. I was the uh, the seventh employee at a, at a startup called Simplify. I spent close to seven years there, um, worked heavily in their, what's referred to as the enterprise business. So essentially taking our technology to teams within media companies, media groups, as well as anyone that wanted to to build a business on top of a platform Uh, That was kind of my charge. Last April, I decided to uh, take a break. And in the short and long term, I I decided to start working in more of a consulting fashion. So I went out and founded a company called Quota NYC. George, as I like to say, if you are looking to build a sales team, if you have broken a sales team, or if you're looking to bend your strategy significantly, um, then my company and myself can usually help. (laughs) So I, I spend a lot of time talking with companies that are looking to try to scale their sales organizations If something's gone sideways and they just don't know why, um, I can have a lot of good conversations on that front. Or if they're trying to identify a new market that they just haven't attacked yet uh, and just wanted to make sure that they got all the pieces right, especially if they're trying to engage with with large uh, organizations that sell uh, their solution through like a channel or a reseller model. So, so that is, that's the 30 seconds of, uh, of what I've been up to George and um, yeah, super excited to kind of dig into what we're going to talk about today. Well,
1: We're, we're going to have a great conversation. I'm sure we always do. I think that it's really interesting. What you said there is if you've broken a sales organization and you and I have met a number of broken sales organizations over the years. Um, and tried to help those organizations transition. But the people that you're working with today are in software as a service and startups and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what a typical company might look like that Donnie Dye shows up at the door and, and does, a, does a gig with?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So so the majority of folks that I work with today are um, revenue-wise or somewhere between... Um, some of them are as low as a million bucks in annual revenue and and some get up into the 15 and 20 uh, million dollar revenue. and And what they're really looking for is they feel like they have a good, strong sense that they've they've figured out the product to sell to a market and they're trying to just add a couple of salespeople. It's I should probably throw this in as well just as a free tip. Um, one of the biggest uh, things that I see is a lot of companies that are trying to decide, uh, if they're doing a lot of founder selling or executive level selling, so maybe the CEO or the, a couple of founders are out there swinging, uh, trying to get in big deals, and they're they're going through the process of saying, do I need to hire a CRO, like a, a big, heavy executive that I got to throw a couple of percent of the company at and a whole bunch of money at and raise some money to get? Do I go that path or do I hire a couple of sellers and build out my process and then start moving forward in that that realm? That's the that's, the major, that's a, a fairly common question that I get, is how do I go from f- founder selling to a sales organization that can grow and scale? On the broken side, uh, it's really a funny thing. When you talk about organizations that, that really are struggling on the sales side... Sales I almost come like sales organisms, and the organisms can be very fickle, um, meaning that um, most sales organizations operate from about a 60 to 70% cultural aspect over a structural, meaning I can put all the right pieces in the right places, and there's still going to be a putter where there should have been a pop. And it all comes down to the culture that you, you've built around that organization. Um, again, I'm not working with the Fortune 500. I'm, I'm typically working with companies that are, that are trying rapidly to go from product market fit into the growth stage of a startup. And, uh, and capture their market space. So well,
1: what a great nugget that you left with people there. And that is around the culture. It's something that I really believe is that we can put all the right systems in place that have proven to work. We can do the analysis around what the go-to-market is going to be and what the value proposition might be. Hire great talent. And if you aren't able to install that culture or build that culture um, that is around wins and uh, positive attitude and that type of thing, you're not going to get as you said, the pop, what do you th- see are some of the real things that can help to contribute to building that culture for our listeners that are like, oh, Donnie just said something pretty cool. You know, what, what are some things that you know that are proven that can build that culture?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and I get, in, I get into debates pretty regularly with other, other sales leaders and even, um, other consultants at times where just what is culture and the way that I, and again, I'm a, I'm a process oriented guy. So I first, if you look at culture, I think at the very core of it, The two things that can drive the best culture are ownership and excellence, meaning if the sales rep believes or the salesperson believes that they truly own the opportunity and the sale and the deal, even to the point where even if a CEO or a founder walks up and says, hey, I really want to be on this sales call with you, if they feel comfortable enough to go, you know, I hear you. Um, it's just not the right call to have you in this call at this moment, and they have that level of ownership to where they're even pushing back at the top of the organization because they're they're saying, no, this is my deal, and nothing. It's not that there's a friction there, but it's just more this idea of I know what's best for it. And and again, that doesn't mean the, the founder doesn't get on the call with them, but it does mean it causes a conversation and that the rep feels hurt. So I think ownership is is one of those things that you have to instill in an organization that comes from clear understanding of what. Who owns what throughout the entire sales process and even post after the contract and those kind of things? It also does things like the client lifecycle. So, simple things like who owns the upsell. So, if you're working in a SaaS model where um, we use, I use a lot of the tip of the spear model where you, you sell something that's smaller initially and then you prove value and then you grow, 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 right within a client's portfolio. Um, but knowing who owns the upsell versus the initial sale, what's the best thing for the organization? And, and all this funnels right into quota. Uh, and everything else. The other piece of it in my mind is excellence, right? And excellence is one of those really cool things, George, where um, it's really peer related, meaning that um, if you have the team built the right way, and you've hired the right folks, and they have that they have the right culture, then they really just don't like tolerating B and C players in their own organization. So it's almost like a manager doesn't have to identify that someone doesn't fit. The rest of the organization in a very professional way is bringing light to that just by their own performance, and even just by the candidness of their feedback. So again, that's, that's the surface level of it. But that's the two things that I think that if, you have, if your sales organization has a high level of ownership and uh, has a natural intrinsic excellence to it. And by the way, these are not things that, that you have to have a magic wand to create. You can build a culture and build uh, a lot of these things into the way that a sales team operated. And so a lot of the, like I mentioned earlier, when you break a sales team, uh, like uh, nine times out of 10, it comes down to just building into that cultural belief system. And culture really is just consistency and time. If you build in the right things and you do it long enough, you'll, you'll, you'll absolutely bend the hardest part of the organization, which is their belief
1: system. Well, and one of the things that, you know, I've had this happen to me in the last little while, you're growing really fast and you're adding salespeople and you don't pay enough attention to the hires that you're bringing in the door. And that's where you can break that culture. And it happens so bloody fast that you really have to be, you know, you have to have your head on a swivel and make sure you're keeping an eye out for it because keeping that positive attitude and that, that, drive for excellence is not a one and done thing. It's an ongoing battle.
2: Oh yeah. And I, I have a, I have a great story for you around that specifically. I had an engagement where um, I got a call from someone that I knew and they said, you know, we had an executive that departed um, in their organization and they just needed someone to come in and just kind of help kind of keep the ship steady through their busiest time of the year. And one of the questions that when I first arrived that came in was they had a lead, a sales manager that was overseeing a team of seven and they said, you know, something is wrong with this team. And um, and the perception when I walked in was that because the team had been grown very quickly and because they had had multiple managers making multiple hires within that team, that the previous managers had just hired poor talent. I mean, they just hadn't hired the talent that would bring the, the results they wanted. And so I dug in and I do what I always do. Um, I started talking directly to the sales reps and which is kind of an interesting. Most consultants you talk to will go kind of top down. I always go bottom up because I think that the guys that are living in the streets, the best way to get a feel for culture is not through what the CEO believes is going on, but it's from what the sales rep is telling you is going on. And so if someone you know goes out of their way to tell me something, I tend to believe them. And so um, I started from, I started talking to the sales reps and what I learned very quickly was this team, the manager that was in place that had been there for the last nine months had never done a single bit of training. Um, the quotas that they had uh, they had established just looked like a straight line going northeast on a chart. Meaning the quotas at the beginning of the year were very easy, and the quotas at the end of the year were impossible. Right? And and the thing was is that of course they crushed the beginning of the year, but they're getting they were getting to the middle of the year and nothing was being sold. And then to top it off, the manager was on every call, uh, closing every piece of business rather than empowering his team to replicate it and scale it. So it's interesting. So from a cultural perspective, we had to do two things. One, we had to have a huge Maya Copa, right? We had to go, listen, guys, you have not been treated fairly. And from that, uh, from that team, some of them ended up being really good sales reps that just got off to a rocky start. Other ones, um, we did have to make some changes there. Um, but at least it was done with clarity and, and with, with fairness overall. And then with the sales manager, we actually took that sales manager and uh, returned them back to an individual contributor role. And so um, just by doing, and then, oh, by the way, too, we also adjusted the quota, uh, which is a monumentous task uh, for a mid-year. I I tend to hate changing things mid-year, but for this one, it was just completely appropriate. And Q4 of last year, the client that I was working with at the time, they had their biggest quarter um, in the history of the company. And that team brought in two-thirds of the revenue came directly from that team. So it just goes to show culture is such a powerful thing that if the markers are aligned, and the organization is willing to say, listen, We have our, we have the best interest in mind for you and we believe in having attainable goals and we are for you that people will work um, just an amazing amount to see success within the organization.
1: When you and I connected a few months back to discuss you coming on the podcast as a guest, you said that, you know, you were a big believer that, that quota, when you dig into an organization, quota is one of the problems. Can you, can you elaborate on that for me? Why, why is that one of the biggest problems, common problems you see?
2: Um, well, I think uh, that's, that's a great point. I still believe that uh, wholeheartedly. I think quota is a naturally charged word, right? So um, in some ways, quota can be something that people love to talk about, and it's things that people want to hide under their mattress in the same month, right? <laughs> so it's like, right. uh, so, so you already are talking about, and, and if you think about it, the idea of a quota, it, is a, it should be the momentum and the expectation of a company rolled up in a single number. And I think there's something kind of elegant about that. The ability for an individual employee to be able to go, this is the number that I have to attain to know that I'm doing a good job. And so it's kind of surprising to me a lot of times how many organizations downplay it. and Or even worse, you have managers that instead of creating um, quotas that are reflections of what you want to get done, they're just kind of a segmentation Of what the manager's goal is. So if the if the manager's, you know, responsible for creating fifty percent lift year over year uh, in terms of new business, then they just take if they have five members, they just give ten percent of that to each one of the folks, right? And I just and I just don't think that that's the best path. Now, in my mind, the way a quota should be written is that it should be incredibly simple to calculate, and and if you can help it, I would recommend not having what's referred to as a. like a scale, a sliding scale within your quotas. Like, So a lot of times I work with organizations, they'll say, well, if you get below 60%, your commission rate goes down to zero. Um, I don't think that's good. I think that you always want to have a place for sales reps to continue to strive, even if they're struggling within a given time. And at the end of the day, if they're struggling to that extent, there probably needs to be a conversation about an outplacement, uh, more so than just trying to bring someone along and string them along the bottom. So on the one side, I think a quota needs to be very simple. And so, and I, the, the line I always draw with my clients is your sales rep should be able to do the math in their head during the call. Meaning if someone says, yeah, I want to do a hundred thousand dollars with you, then they should be able to instantly go, okay, that means five grand in my pocket. They shouldn't go, okay, well, I'm at 30% of quota this so far quarter to date. So that means I'm in the seven and a half percent. I mean, it's just, right. that's where you get into the, the idea of it being demotivational.
1: So yeah. a question around that, because you're, you're hitting on a very important point. The transparency of the comp plan so that the salesperson knows exactly in their head how much money they're making from the deal that they are working at the moment is vitally important. And most organizations suck at that.
2: (laughs) They do. I agree. (laughs) As a healthy business I have today will prove. (laughs) So it does take some time.
1: Right. I agree. You know, getting that simple, you know, and the other thing is, is the organization gets bigger and now you got a CFO at the table. And you've got people ops at the table and you got the CRO at the table and the sales management team at the table, maybe even the CEOs there saying, well, we want to pay our top performers a lot. How do you navigate that world to get a simple comp plan?
2: The, the simply put, and it's by the way, I tend to see the opposite, which, it sounds, which is going to sound odd. A lot of times I see people that we put comp plans in front of, sales reps crush it. And then you see a lot of blowback from the CEO not wanting to write the big check. Oh, I know. And so, which is to me, far more painful, right? I mean, there's nothing worse than making a promise and a commitment to a sales rep. And then when they achieve that goal to go, uh, you know, or even worse, strap them down with a much heavier goal um, so that they never have that happen again. I I wonder,
1: Donnie, on that, do you you find that when it happens, it's because one person knocked it out of the park, a bunch of other people didn't perform, and the overall team didn't hit their number that was expected. So that's why the CEO has a problem writing that check. If everybody would have outperformed, he wouldn't have any problem with it because he's got a bunch of money in the bank.
2: And, and in some ways, George may oversimplifying a complex question. Like, so I've seen comp plans. I'm reminded of, a, of a, an organization I was involved with that I came in, and the CRO was departing, and as a parting gift, he gave all of his largest accounts to the sales team uh, before the next sales leader could come in. And uh, which is, which it's his own issues, right? Because so the first thing you want to go is uh, the first thing as a sales leader, you don't want to say is, "Oh, that's great. You can't have that." So that got changed. So that was that was one challenge. The way that those sellers were paid is that if you, let's say, for example, you had a client that was $50,000 a month. If the client bought something new from you, you got commissioned on it, but you didn't get commissioned on the old sales. Well, the nature of the product that they were selling is that you could sell them a variation of the same product. Meaning if you had a blue version of something, they could sell an orange version of it. And they would get commissioned on the orange one, even though the company didn't gain an extra dime, right? And if anything, they probably lost something because now they had to do the process of changing things out. Think about that. So, you, so where I found in that case, you had sellers, for lack of a better word, that were gaming the system. So they were swapping out old orders for new orders so that they could get big commission checks. So in that regard, I think you absolutely have to change the commission plan to be more realistic of the success of the company. In other places, I think that, um, well, in most cases, that's not the case. In most cases, I think, reps are doing the, the right, they're doing, they're doing right by the company and, and selling you business. I think um, you just have to set that expectation with the CEO at first. Like I, I, the problem I tend to see is not that the CEO doesn't understand they're going to have to write the checks. It's not, a, it's not a logical argument. It's an emotional one at the end. Just like you would sell everything else, just like you sell the customer, you also have to sell and set expectations against the executive team to pay. You know, if we knock it out of the park, this is going to be the best day ever, but just realize we are going to see this money come out.
1: I was really excited to get you on the podcast because we have local sellers and we have sales managers and VPs of sales that are listening to this broadcast. And I'm sure they're sitting there going, there's a lot of science and math that is going into this thing. Um, You know, I'm in the sales business. I just go call on customers and close deals. What you need to understand, our listeners need to understand is that SaaS companies, software as a service companies that are building new pieces of marketing technology have their own inside sales teams, and they're hiring Donnie Dye to come in. And to craft out all the science behind how many calls need to be made, what the culture needs to look like, build a culture of excellence. And if you're a local seller that is not embracing new technology and this way of thinking, where you're almost more of a chemist as a sales leader than you are as the rah-rah person walking into the room, you're you're really going to be at a disadvantage. And, and Donnie, you and I have seen that a number of times, especially in the traditional media space.
2: I've been involved in local media since, oh man, I don't even want to age myself at this point. But. I think my first job was with Yellow Pages in around 2004 or five, right? So, so I definitely, we were we were selling uh, guaranteed clicks. I think was my first digital product. So, yeah, and it's interesting because even back then, especially, I was promoted into a, a role where my job was to uh, sl- tr- do my best to convert a an ink on paper sales rep into a digital sales rep. And uh, I remember sitting in those cars with uh, with Yellow Page reps and um, hearing the hearing the phrase, "Listen, why would I ever sell anything online?" I've got 20 years of of ink on paper. I think you're hitting on a similar revolution in the space today, right? So you have, especially in some of these startups. I mean, they, they're they're coming in with totally different structures. For example, I work with a number of team number of companies that that use um, a BDR model. That's a, it's a uh, an acronym for business development rep. So what they're doing is they're hiring younger reps, and all they're doing is is hitting those number games in pretty sophisticated ways to activate as many conversations as possible. And when the opportunities are large enough to actually kick it over to an account executive who's more, would probably be more like the, the local media seller uh, in terms of experience and acumen. And the best thing that, the best thing I could give advice to any, any local media seller today is that it's super important to um, become as much as an expert as you can tolerate uh, in the local media space. You know, I used to say, he who educates indoctrinates, meaning if you're the first person to explain an idea to a a potential client, whatever your opinion is, that becomes the opinion of the person you're talking to because there's no frame of reference. They're not saying, well, you know, I know you believe that did stream data is a great way to do geofencing, but I happen to believe that truncated data is better. They don't have that frame of reference. So whatever you say, they're going to believe. Now, I used to say that. And the reason is because the average buyer in the local space today already comes to the table with a baseline of knowledge. They've done a Google search. They've watched a YouTube video. They've gotten indoctrination by sales rep, whatever. They've probably sat across from a competitor. And by the way, most studies show that they're not even going to talk to you until they're two-thirds of the way through the process. Meaning, by the time that they sit down with you and talk brass tacks about how to advertise, they're usually sitting there already having gotten enough information to know they need to do something. And so what I say today is instead of he who educates indoctrinates, I now say he who elevates indoctrinates or she who elevates indoctrinates, meaning it's not good enough to be able to educate them on what you're doing. You now have to raise it to the next level. You have to have like some level of granularity. If you can clarify a point for an advertiser, you'll have that advertiser forever because you took something that was complex. The, the Internet's great at, at, at uh, quantity, but it's horrible at quality. So if you can take an element of quality into the sales call and into the conversation, then I think you stand a, a more than a fighting chance of of landing a large opportunity. Because at the end of the day, people don't need more options and more tactics nearly as much as they need understanding of what they're buying.
1: If I give you a magic wand and you could walk into one of those media companies that you've dealt with in your past life and and say. What's one of the things you would ask them to do to be successful from all the experience you have across those organizations? And money wasn't an object. What, what's the one thing you would install inside those organizations if you could?
2: I would install two things. Uh, one, I would install a certification process that was ongoing for technical prowess. So I would come in and say, it's not good enough that you sit through an eight-hour training or that you listen to a four-minute video. I want you to collect the information. I want you to process it. And then I'm going to test you on it. And then I would create some sort of standardized form. So if you're a large media company, then I might have a a holding group level, right, kind of certification that I issued out. And so it would become an internal cultural sense of pride, but it also become a way to normalize and elevate the understanding so that whenever someone interacted with a team member that was certified from that organization – they 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 understood and they felt the impact of an expert as opposed to and, and there are a lot of experts in local media in the sales channels. I don't I'm not taking anything away. I think the ability to be able to quantify and verify that is incredibly valuable. And uh, and secondly, I would I would uh, it still surprises me how many companies don't add some level of quota um, against at least a grouping of these products. I mean it's a, a an old joke that's um, that I think is still accurate. When I, used to, when I used to train local media teams, I'd say, you know, I have this thing that I refer to as the Ricky Bobby effect. In digital, in digital tactics, in tactics where they are not anchored to a content-based media company, meaning not the TV station or the radio station or the newspaper, that if they're not attached, meaning if they're SEO, PPC, social, um, programmatic, any of these, if they're not attached to a core content that is proprietary to the seller, most markets run at about an 85% incumbent rate, meaning... 85% of the time, it's one company that wins. So it turns out that Ricky Bobby's dad was right. You're either first or you're last. Either you're dominating your local space or you're fighting over 15%, which if you're fighting over 15%, who cares? And even now, you're seeing more and more. And, there, and by the good news is there's so many new channels coming in that there's new opportunities to do it every day. So for example, voice-activated advertising is on its way. Right. So this is probably going to be the year that there is no incumbent voice activated network in your local, spe- in your local market. So who's going to own the 85%? So you asked me earlier really if I could wave my wand. I would do two things. I'll create a certification process within the organization and I would set a quota against at least a grouping of digital products and then I'll measure it like crazy.
1: So on the quota, I want to dig into that a little bit. You're saying you have to sell X of X. And what I'm wondering is, have you thought about quotas on lead metrics rather than on the lagging metric of did you sell the product or not?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, it's, I think that's the beginning of the – that's the beginning of, of sales acumen, right, or prowess, to where you're able to go in and say – and the way I look at it is like this. If you have a guy who makes 50 calls and books three meetings or if you have a guy that makes 10 calls and books four meetings, which rep would you rather have? Uh, so many – like I hear from so many sales leaders today, it's like it's a numbers game. They're right, but it doesn't mean that bigger numbers are better. Right. And so you need to look, I always call, I call it like the salesperson batting average, right? Like you want a good batting average. You don't just want raw data. And, and, uh, for example, I have a lot of clients that I do rep vetting for and interviewing and stuff like that for. And it's just, um, it is, it is shocking George, how many people are still calling me up and giving me the, the man, I make more calls a day and more emails a day. And I'm like, well, great. Well, why do you have to do that? I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with your process, man? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you're kind of, I know it's, I know it's, I know it's a, I know it's a uh, a sales point, but you're selling to the wrong audience. In my mind, you want to be effective because because what we're finding is these these sales calls, uh, regardless of vertical, regardless of size, are getting more and more important and getting more and more precise. Right, so oh, you're gonna yeah. get one shot.
1: How worried do we need to be about burning leads? Then I think you're leading into burning leads here.
2: Well, I, I think there's two sides of that ditch, to be honest, George. I think in one in one case, you don't want to be so reckless with leads that. That you're just that you're burning through it, but you're still making quota. But I also think that you don't want to be so delicate with the sales lead that you're you're allowing their process to be driven as opposed to your own.
1: Right. So there definitely is a happy medium, and I do want to say we've had a couple of uh, we've had a couple of great drivebys there. So you definitely are in New York City because we're hearing the sirens in the background. And that is just, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> that's a, no, that's okay. That's just the way it is in New York. So people have to get used to it. It there really is a happy medium. I got people saying, "Well, you don't want to boil the ocean." Well, yeah, but I want to talk to a lot of potential customers and find customers. So, what about disqualifying a certain set of customers because they don't bring enough on uh, annual contract value?
2: Yeah, you're you're hitting on you're hitting on such a per, an important thing. So, one of the major changes I would say has happened in in just the modern sale regardless if you're in the business of selling, selling um it's funny on my on my extreme days, I'll say I actually wonder if selling the way that it was 20 years ago is even, even a thing anymore. Um, I think that we're, we're seeing a, a, mig- a migration from activity to coverage. And let me explain what that means. In the old model, if you worked hard enough, you would find success. In this model, because the internet is so ubiquitous with information, because there are so many tools to get a baseline of real knowledge of what you're buying, I really think that it's, it's much less around, let me convince and convert you, and it's becoming more of let me maintain a top of mind mentality so that when your priority list hits and then my service hits somewhere in your top three, that I'm one of the two companies you care about. You right. see the difference? So what I'll do with clients that I work with, um, we'll actually, so for a new rep, we'll have a set number of, of accounts they work. And then what I'll, I'll give them a four different acronyms. And in the first 90 days, their goal is to try to move every one of those within one of those buckets. And the four buckets are in cycle, which means that you've reached out to them, you've gotten a response, and they're actively buying what you're trying to sell them. So you need that typically becomes an opportunity in Salesforce or a deal in HubSpot or somewhere in your pipeline, right? So if they're in cycle, you got to be a part of that process. Or they're out of cycle, which means that by the criteria, meaning they have the budget, they have the awareness, they could become a, a customer, but they're just their priorities aren't high enough. To where you're willing to where they're in an active process. So if, if in cycle is, I'm ready to buy it, out of cycle is, I'll be ready to buy it someday. Right? So that's the first two. So oh, ICE, and then we mark, we literally mark them IC or OC. The next one is not a fit because there are some scenarios where unpaid looks great. But then when you have that conversation, they just don't fit. <laughs> so there's like, so, and this and this actually goes back to some of the work you have to do around what a fit looks like with the organization. But the best gift you can give yourself is removing the guys out that that will never be able to buy your service for whatever reason. And-
1: well, I'm just giving you a round of applause for that because I tell reps all the time. They're like, what if I go call on that customer and I find out that they don't have the budget to do what we're proposing to them? You know, they're it's not a fit. It is not a fit for the solution, and you're going to have a dissatisfied customer down the road. Their expectations are through the roof. Whatever it might be, mm-hmm. it is important to disqualify them and move on to the people that there is a fit.
2: Well, you know, and the funny thing about that too, George, is that um, I find a lot of times that the NF setting can create some really interesting conversations with the manager of that team as well. Right. So if a rep comes back with an NF on an on a an NF designation, not a fit on an account that the manager feels like should be able to be sold, what a great conversation, right? Because somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And those micro conflicts, and you think about it, if, it's, if, it's, uh, if you have a high level of ownership within the culture, then it's really the rep's call to go, yeah, I've done my due diligence and I just don't think these guys are going to be able to do what we want to with them.
1: Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not talking about pre-qualifying the sale. I'm saying you've talked to the prospect, you've done your needs analysis and you look at it and this thing is not going to work. And, um, it, you know, what it, what it does do is get you to focus on the right customers. So we hear about customer selection all the time. You know, you're, you're saying that that's something that you work on when you get into an organization.
2: Everybody has a finite pool. I mean, i talked to a lot of startups that, you know, the first conversation they're saying, yeah, well, every person who owns a home can be a customer of ours. Really? You want every person that owns a home, every single like, and so, and so when the, when you can, uh, you know, it's like Zig Ziglar, he says, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. And, and a lot of conversations I have is, is I talk about going from the, especially in a startup, going from anything to everything. So, and I think most sales organizations have the same kind of, need to have the same mentality. I had a rep one time that told me that her founder printed shirts that said, I'll take anything. And I think as a startup, there's a mentality you have to live with that, where it's like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take anything to get enough data to figure out what I can sell for a product market fit. But I think a lot of organizations have to make that change from, I'm going to close the door on taking anything. And I'm going to wait until everything is aligned for the ideal client.
1: Isn't there a stage though, in the startup's life where you will scratch and claw to get any deal across the line, but then you kind of transition after you truly have product market fit. So it, it could that have been what that CEO was trying to accomplish with that shirt.
2: Yeah. in the early days he was, I think, but I think old habits die hard too.
1: Right. It's tough to get that out once it's in.
2: Yeah. You well, And you also start to get these mentalities, but like, I mean, there's some, there's, there are some startups that are around for a long time and they get so used to making adjustment, to making an adjustment, to making an adjustment. And it really becomes a problem if you ever want to sell the business, because then you've got an organization that's built on every client is a unique flower, not something that can scale. But what has scaled is your team, your service team, which is now hundreds of people, right? Instead <laughs> of creating a process. And, yeah. and I tell you, it's funny. Um, the difference in scaling and not scaling a lot of times is your sales team saying no. Sales teams that say no tend to be able to scale. Sales teams that don't say no end up creating a muddled ICP, create a muddled marketplace, and can really end up finding themselves out of money sooner than they should, even though they're selling. So it's kind of like it's the difference in being uh, busy versus effective, which kind of comes back to the same sales rep. Do you want the guy who's taking every deal that he can find? And and, uh, I'll give you one other nugget too. George, one of the things I say to young sales managers is I said, uh, I'll tell them, you know, you're going to spend your life either arguing with the executive team on behalf of your reps, or you're going to end up arguing with your reps on behalf of the executive team. And, it's, and, I, and, I, tell, and I tell them, I'll spoil the ending for you. You don't want to spend your life arguing with the executive team. Because <laughs> like, you won't be a manager long if you do that. But that's really kind of the mentality. even sales reps do that. Either they spend their time telling the organization, I know it's not perfect, but we should take it anyway. Or they tell the customer, yep, that's a great problem to have. We don't solve that problem today, but here's the problem we do solve.
1: Donnie, I'm sure that we could go on for hours and hours, but we uh, wanted to capture the biggest nuggets from you, and I wish you all the best with this new role at Quota NYC. Can you tell people how they could get a hold of you if there are some sales leaders out there that are thinking, I could use some Donnie Dye in my organization?
2: Absolutely. Super easy to reach out to me. Obviously, my LinkedIn profile, if you just Google Donnie Dye, D-O-N-N-Y-D-Y-E, I'm the first LinkedIn that comes up there. Uh, If you want to email me directly, Uh, It's just the same name, D-O-N-N-Y-D-Y-E at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for your time today. We we really appreciate you having on the show.
2: Happy to join. Best of luck.
1: Well, I've had long conversations with Donnie Dye. Sometimes we uh, do it over a couple of bourbon. And, uh, but what I did find from this presentation, some key takeaways and sales team management and how to manage that sales team and building that culture. And, you know, Donnie said something that was really interesting in his, around the ownership and the excellence, build the culture inside a sales organization. So you want the reps to take ownership of their part. And you also want them striving for that excellence. So I thought that that was very interesting. The other thing is, is he really takes a bottom-up approach when he walks into a new sales team. He goes and talks to the frontline sales reps rather than going top-down and asking what's happening. Now, you could probably do it either way, but you definitely have to have both approaches so you can hear what's happening on the front lines. I find a lot of times that sales strategy is designed in a bubble without that street-level influence. So really important as you start to build out your sales organization or you start to improve your sales organization, there's some great learnings there from Donnie Dye, the founder of Quota NYC. We really appreciate having him on the Conquer Local podcast this week. I'm George Leith. I'll see you when I see you. You've been listening to the Conquer Local podcast with your host, George Leith. Executive producers are Brendan King, Jeff Tomlin, and Danny Mario. Audio engineering,
2: Sound Lounge by T-Bone. Marketing by Rory Lawford Produced by Colleen McGrath